section twenty three of unaddressed letters by anonymous edited by frank athelstain swettenham this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nemo a mere lie as the tale i'm going to tell you is only a lie you will understand that it is not of my making i cannot even pretend to have heard it at first hand the author was a scientist who lied in the intervals between his researches it was a relief i suppose after too close contact with the eternal truths of nature his mental fingers seemed to wander over the keys of an instrument of romance striking strange chords and producing unsuspected effects in an accompaniment to which he sang a perpetual solo amongst the most eccentric of his class the professor would still have been a remarkable character no one seemed to know to what nationality he belonged and it was useless to ask him for any information because of the doubt which clouded any statement that he made indeed to put it shortly he lied like a tombstone when i met him his only companion was a papuan boy so black that a bit of coal would have made a white mark on him and the professor would affectionately stroke the child's head and say that when he had grown bigger when his skull was fully developed he meant to take it and was looking forward to the day when he could examine it carefully inside and out and compare it with the skulls of certain wild tribes which he felt certain he should thus be able to prove were of true melanesian origin he would then sometimes relate how during a visit to cadiz he took a great fancy to the head of a Spaniard whom he met there. He thought the man was in failing health, but as he could not waste time in the peninsula, he looked about for some means of hastening the possibly slow progress of disease. The professor soon found that the owner of the head had a reckless and profligate nephew, with whom he scraped acquaintance. To him the professor said that he had observed his uncle, and thought him looking far from well, indeed, he did not fancy he could last long and explaining that he was himself an anthropologist concerned in scientific studies of the benefit of humanity he arranged with the nephew that when his uncle died the professor should pay a sum of thirty pounds and be allowed to take the uncle's head the uncle died shortly afterwards and the money was paid but the nephew a man without principle buried his relative in defiance of his bargain with the professor the means by which the man of science secured full value for his investment made one of his best stories and some day i may tell it to you but when i began this letter i had quite a different adventure in my mind and i will take the liberty of asking you to suppose that the collector of skulls is telling you his own tale in his own way I was in Australia, where I had already met with some strange experiences, the last of them a disastrous expedition into the desert, where, when I was quite alone and a thousand miles from the nearest habitation, I fell over two precipices, first breaking my right and then immediately afterwards my left leg. I got back to civilization with some difficulty, as I had to crawl on my hands most of the way, dragging my broken legs behind me what really made the journey seem long was the fact that i had to forage for my own sustenance as well 
i was somewhat exhausted by these hardships and was giving myself a short holiday for rest when australia was moved to a pitch of the greatest excitement and indignation by the exploits of a daring bushranger who set the police and the government at defiance and established such a panic in the land that a party of volunteers was formed sworn to track the outlaw down and bring him in alive or dead i do not say that i had any ultimate design on the man's head but still the skull of a person of that type could not fail to be interesting so partly as a relaxation but mainly in the cause of science i joined the expedition it would not interest you to describe our failures how the man outwitted us how just when we thought we had him he would slip through our fingers partly by his own skill his knowledge of the bush and the excellence of his horses but mainly i think by the help of sympathizers who always gave warning of our movements and most secret plans i will pass over all that and take you to the final scene in the drama when we were not actually in the bush we were following our quarry from one country place to another as the information we received gave us a clue to his whereabouts it seldom happened that we passed a night in a town and when not camping out we were bilted on the people of the district the wealthiest and most important of them being too glad to place their houses at our disposal one evening after a hot pursuit feeling sure we were close upon the trail of our man we reached a great house where a number of guests were already being entertained in spite of our numbers we were welcomed with effusion and after dinner the ladies of the party took advantage of the sudden arrival of a number of young fellows ready for anything to get up an impromptu dance i am not a dancing man my time has been spent in communion with nature in reading in the open book of truth therefore i left the revelers and went to bed we had a long and a hard day in the saddle and i was weary you must have fallen asleep almost as soon as i lay down now i must tell you what i afterwards heard from others of my party it was a little after midnight and the dancing was going on with great spirit when i this of course is what they tell me suddenly appeared at a door of the ballroom in my nightdress with a rifle in my hand and without hesitation i walked through the room and out into a veranda that led towards the back of the house my head was thrown somewhat back my eyes were wide open and seemed fixed on some distant object while i was evidently unconscious of my immediate surroundings i fear my sudden entry into the dancing room in such a very unconventional dress was rather a shock to some of the ladies i am told that several screamed and one or more of the older ones fainted but for myself i knew none of this till afterwards it appears that what with astonishment at my appearance and the necessary attention to the ladies whose nerves were upset a little time elapsed before any one thought of following me then someone fancied he heard the sound of a horse's feet and the men of my party pulled themselves together and made for the stables as that was the direction i seemed to have taken i was nowhere to be seen but a stable door was open and my horse saddle and bridle had gone then the matter began to look serious and as my friends saddled their horses 
and started to look for me, riding they hardly knew where, there were rather dismal forebodings of the probable fate of even a fully clad man, luckless enough to be lost in the Australian bush. It was a lovely starlight night with a young moon, and, under other circumstances, the ride might have been pleasant enough, but the aimlessness of the whole business was becoming painfully evident to the searchers, when the sound of a rifle shot was distinctly heard at no great distance. The horses' heads were turned towards the direction from which the sound came, and the troop pushed on at a brisk pace. Almost immediately, a faint column of smoke was perceived, and as the horsemen approached the spot, the embers of a dying fire shed a slight ruddy glow in the darkness. The word was passed to proceed with caution, but the party was already so close that they could see my white nightdress. As I stood with naked feet by the side of my horse, regarding with a half-day's expression the smoking rifle which I held in my hand, sixty yards off was the thin column of smoke rising from the dying fire. I was surrounded by my friends, who all spoke at once, and fired a perfect volley of questions at me. I said, Softly, gentlemen, softly, and I will tell you all I know about it, for indeed the situation seems strange enough. As you know, I went to bed. I slept and I dreamed. I suppose I was overwrought, and my mind was full of the bushranger, for I thought I was again on his track, out in the bush, on horseback and alone. It was night, but I seemed to be riding with a purpose, and my horse knew where he was going, for by and by I was drawn towards a thin column of white smoke, the smoke of a wood fire, and then as I got nearer I caught the flickering glow of dying embers. I felt the object of our search was there, and I moved forward with extreme caution, till I had got within a hundred yards, and then I distinctly saw the outlaw lying perfectly straight on the ground, his feet towards the fire, and his horse hobbled hard by. I say I saw the outlaw, but I was dreaming, and in my dream I knew it was the man, though I could not see his face. I dismounted, and leading my horse, I got to within sixty yards of the sleeper. Then, fearing that if I went near he might wake and escape me, I took a steady aim, pulled the trigger, and the next instant I was wide awake, standing here in my nightdress. Almost before I had finished, I saw men looking towards the fire, which was no dream, and we all of us now distinctly made out the form of a man, lying on his side, almost on his face, with his feet towards the embers and his head by the bush. Moreover, we could both see and hear a horse that was evidently hobbled not very far from the sleeper. It did not take long to surround the spot where the man lay. But, as we rapidly closed in on the sleeper, he never stirred. A moment more and we were beside him. A dark stream, on which the glow from the fire seemed to shed some of its own red light, was oozing slowly from beneath the man's chest. And, as several hands turned his face up to the stars and the pale moonlight, it was too evident that he was dead, and that his life had gone out with that crimson stream which flowed from a bullet wound in his heart. 
I did not know the man myself, but several of our party recognized him. It was the bushranger, and, as I expected, his skull was not without features of special interest to science. End of section 23